Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you again. If you have your Bibles or you want to follow along with the order of service, we are reading 1 Samuel 7, verses 3 to 17 this morning. And just to bring you up to speed with what's taken place so far, uh, last week we looked at how the Ark of the Covenant was doing its rounds, how it was bringing death and destruction everywhere it went. And the idea that was trying to communicate was at the heart of idolatry is the heart. At the heart of idolatry is the heart. And the people of Israel, even the Philistines, were treating God and God's presence in a functional and instrumental way. And by the time it gets back and the Philistines send it back to Israel, it ends up in a place called Kiriath-Jerim where it remains for 20 years. And it's not until David in 2 Samuel calls for the ark to return And up until this point, we've seen glimpses of Samuel. Samuel's kind of, we've known about his birth with his mother, Hannah, and uh, he's shown up almost in in just little glimpses. But here we see the beginning of Samuel's ministry. So follow along with me as we read 1 Samuel 7, 3 to 17. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shan and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it brings life to the lifeless, it brings hope to the hopeless, and it brings encouragement to those who need so much encouragement, Lord, and we are those people. We would ask that your son would declare his gospel to us today through the reading and the preaching of his word. We ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts to hear. I pray that you would 
convict us of sin, but also mend our broken bones, give us joy, fill our hearts with joy so that we would be a people who not only know your gospel, but proclaim it, share it, and help those who are also hurting. So be with us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, Samuel hasn't really been on the scene much. He shows up here, and his ministry is rather dynamic. Things begin to change pretty radically, and his role is that of judge. We haven't went through the book of Judges, but we touched on one of the judges in our first sermon, which was dealing with Samson. And for those of us who are thinking, what in the world is a judge? What does a judge do? Is it similar to Judge Judy or one of the judges that we know and are familiar with here? No, the biblical judges are a little bit different. Um, Samuel is a judge in the sense that he is a ruler. This is, if you like The Office, there's this great scene, um, you can pretend you don't watch The Office, it's fine. Um, there's a character called Stanley, and Stanley is this grumpy character, and uh, he, but he has this great line, He's just him in the camera, and he says, I have been trying to get on jury duty every year since I was 18 years old, to get to go sit in an air-conditioned room downtown, judging people, while my lunch is paid for, well, that's the life. And I think some of us, kind of like, uh, kind of like Stanley, we, maybe our spiritual gift is to judge people. I do a really good job judging people. I just get to the heart of people's weaknesses and their failures, and I can really, you know, proclaim judgment on them. It's not that. Samuel's role as a judge is to rule the people. He is a precursor to the kings, and we're going to look at the first king of Israel, Saul, in two weeks' time. If we've been tracking along with this passage, especially last week, the great sin that Israel is committing is that theirs is not a religion of the heart. Theirs is not a religion of the heart. They want God to do stuff for them. God is this cosmic vending machine that provides for them when they're in trouble with the Philistines. They want victory over war. But what Samuel does, dramatically, biblically, right from the offset, he gets to the heart. The Israelites' problem is idolatry, and the heart of idolatry is the heart. Samuel's remedy is to go to the heart of what their sin is. And Eugene Peterson says this, which is applicable to all of us. God's word, however it begins and however long it takes to get there, always ends up direct and personal. Me, you, the word of God is not about somebody else. It is never a general abstract truth, but always personal address. The biblical revelation is never a commentary on ideas or culture or conditions. It is always about actual persons, actual pain, actual trouble, actual sin, you, me, who you are and what you have done, who I am and what I have done. It is both easy and common to lose this personal focus and let the biblical story blur into generalized pronouncements, fuzzy cosmic opinions, and religious indignation. And what we see with Samuel it's in a personal address. He's calling the Israelites to repentance. He's saying to them, if you are going to return to God, you have to do it with all your heart. It has to be with all your heart. And if you notice here from the very, in the very first verse that we read, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods and direct your heart to the Lord. He mentions heart twice. And heart has a different meaning in Scripture as it does for us. What Samuel is essentially doing is he's recalling the Shema, 
Deuteronomy 6, which is in many ways the great proof, proof text for all the life of worshiping Israel. And I'll read this for us. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. What's the heart? Moses seems to be saying that there's the heart, there's the soul, there's the spirit, there's the might. What is being conjured up by both Samuel and the Shema, Samuel and Moses, is the heart is your total devotion. It's your total devotion. What has your heart will have your devotion. So what Samuel is doing, not only echoing the Shema here, Deuteronomy 6, he is saying there are not different aspects to who you are. Maybe there are, but what I'm talking about is what is the express totality of your existence? Whatever is your, the totality of who you are, that's what you have got to give to God. That's with what you've got to love God. And so we can put it this way, especially as it relates to Deuteronomy 6, the oneness of the Lord your God is matched by the oneness and the totality of your devotion to this God. The oneness of God must be matched by your devotion, the total devotion to God. So what we're looking at here and what we're hearing from Samuel, he is calling Israel to total commitment to God. You cannot share God. There's no joint custody between our devotion and our emotions with God. Israel is to have a single heart. They are to have a single loyalty of devotion to Yahweh. And uh, Soren Kierkegaard, a great Danish philosopher and theologian, once said that purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. And that is what Samuel is calling us to here. He's calling us to will one thing, and that is to, what it means to be pure in heart. But notice what, he's, what else Samuel is calling Israel and us to do. It's returning. This is the, this is the heart of repentance is this. It's returning from something to something. And if we miss this aspect of what repentance is, returning from sin, idolatry, false worship, to God, then we're missing the bigger picture. We tend to think that to repent from something is just to turn away from sin. If that's all we do, if we just find ourselves sitting in this no man's land of our spiritual existence, we haven't properly returned. We have properly repented. It has to follow this from something dynamic to something dynamic. And that's important. Samuel is calling their hearts and devotion not just away from sin, not just away from the Ashtaroth and the Baals, but from those things to God. And what I want to look at this morning is there's right ways and wrong ways to repent. There's right ways and wrong ways to return from sin to God. And so if we had an outline, the first point would be half-hearted repentance. The second point would be wholehearted repentance. And then our third point this morning would be we need another helper. So first of all, what is half-hearted repentance? Well, if the first stage in repentance is to turn from idols, from the idols of our hearts, from sin, this feels to happen when we treat sins as mistakes. When we treat our sins as simply, well, listen, I was a, a victim of circumstance. Uh, these are just, this was a, an accident. And when that happens, when sins are simply mistakes or accidents, or I didn't mean to do that, um, then we don't need forgiveness. 
We need excusing. And C.S. Lewis uh, has a great quote about the difference between what true forgiveness is, what true repentance is, and false repentance in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says this, I find that when I think I am asking God to forgive me, I'm often in reality, unless I watch myself carefully, asking him to do something quite different. I am asking him not to forgive me, but to excuse me. But there is all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology. I will never hold it against you. And everything between us will be exactly as it was before. But excusing says, I see that you couldn't help it or didn't mean it. You weren't really to blame. If one was not really to blame, then there is nothing to forgive. In that sense, forgiveness and excusing are almost opposites. The trouble is that what we call asking God's forgiveness very often really consists in asking God to accept our excuses. And so when we forgive our, or when we treat our sins as mistakes, as accidents, what we're doing is we're not actually asking God to forgive us. We're asking God, just leave me as I am. It was a mistake. And let's move forward. We give explanations. And to look at this a little bit more carefully, to get more personal, to use Eugene Peterson's quote from earlier, let's get personal with how we do this on an individual level. I think what we see when it comes to excusing our sins, we see this most clearly in blame shifting, in blame shifting. And this is probably the, fir the first time we see it is with Adam in the garden in Genesis 3.12. God asks Adam, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you give to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. From the very start in the garden, we're making up excuses. We're shifting the blame. And we do this today, even though that happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, we still do it. My kids are with my wife in the nursery, so I can actually get away with saying this. I don't think they're going to listen to this online. My kids, our kids, if we're really honest, they are the clearest example of blame shifters, right? Um, they'll do something wrong. Well, it was Nicholas or it was Cameron. It was, there are so many cold cases in my house. I don't know who's done what, but there's always someone to blame. Uh, we can blame it on our nationality. Well, I got drunk because I'm Irish. Um, I like to fight because I'm Irish. I swear a lot because well, I'm Irish. There's a lot of reasons we, we can blame on our nationality. I'm Italian. I've just got this hot temper. It's amazing that whenever we do something well, we don't say, well, it's because I'm Swedish. We always say, well, yeah, it's, it's about me. So always our nationality is to blame when we do something wrong. And then there's our context in which we blame shift. Well, I wouldn't lash out or be disrespectful or undermine my parents, my coach, my elders, my boss, if it wasn't that they were so sinful, if it wasn't that they were so annoying. We also do it, if we're getting a little bit more close to the surface, if you knew what that person did to me, if you knew how they offended me, then you would understand the way that I am treating them. You would understand that I can't forgive them. You can understand why I hold this grudge. Or even if we peel the onion a little bit more, well, he listens to me better than my husband listens to me. So I'm going to spend more time with him and continue in this dangerous relationship. The common factor in all these things is this hidden admission that sin hasn't actually been committed. That something or someone other 
or some other context, some external pressure is pressed in on me and forced me to do this. But it's not really my fault. And in today's council culture, victimhood culture, snowflake, millennial culture, whatever you want to call it, someone else has to take the blame. And the results of this is that we're not able on this way to fully repent. We're not able to go from our sins to God. It's short-circuited. And this is half-hearted repentance. We are quick to make excuses for our sins and to think that by giving God our excuses, we have actually repented. But what's all that's happened is that we've essentially satisfied or placated our consciences. We're not satisfied until someone will accept our weak, half-hearted excuses. And whenever we give these half-hearted excuses, we actually don't receive God's mercy. We actually don't receive the healing that we need, and we end up unchanged. And some of us keep wondering, why is it that I can't grow in grace? Because you haven't repented all the way from your sin to God. Half-hearted repentance, in a sense, is a failure to realize and recognize sin as sin. And if sin is understood as a mistake or as an accident, then that which caused the mistake doesn't really need to be put away. So when Samuel is calling the Israelites to put away their false gods, those things which we hold close, which are simply causing us to trip up or make mistakes, really don't need to be put away. They're not as bad as you might think they are. Half-hearted repentance not only brings with it a faulty view of sin, it also brings with it a faulty view of who we are. And because half-hearted repentance doesn't take us all the way from our sins to God, it remains in the sphere of the self. Everything remains about me. Repentance is really grief for the self. It's not really grief over the sins that we have committed against God. And that's such an important distinction. And so many of us remain just in the sphere of self when it comes to sin. And we can't break out of that and get into God's sphere, which is so much bigger. And when we refuse this movement from sin to God, we're actually refusing God's forgiveness of our sins. We're refusing God's forgiveness of our sins. We're refusing God's mercy. And we remain stuck fast in our sins. Well, what does whole repentance, wholehearted repentance look like? If Adam gives us an example, which we're all very common with, and two, what does wholehearted repentance look like? What's repentance that goes from our sins all the way to God? And as I go from our sins, I keep doing this dynamic here where maybe you guys are feeling more sinful and these guys may have to switch that over a little bit so you don't uh, get some subliminal psychological hurt involved there. What is wholehearted repentance? Well, wonderfully, Mr. Nelson had the confession of faith, confession of sin is Psalm 51. And this ties in so beautifully with what we're looking at. In one sense, we're looking at Adam showing us blame shifting, not recognizing sin for what it is. But then on the other side, we see David. David not only knows what sin is, he recognizes the sin for what it is, and he takes it all the way to God. And if you know the background to Psalm 51, and you sketched that for us, David has not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, First sin was he was already home from war. He was, and that's usually where sins, all good, couple good sins, all bad sins start, right? It's a dereliction of duty. It's a dereliction of responsibility. It usually happens when our guard is down. David's guard is down. He should be out there fighting with the Israelites against the Philistines, but he's home. He's on the rooftop. He sees Bathsheba, enters into an affair, and maneuvers 
almost moves heaven and earth to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah put to death. Puts him on the front line, asks Joab to retreat the forces. And in many cases, in, in the real sense of the, the horror of it all, the atrocity of it all, is Uriah is left not only in contrast to David being derelict of his responsibilities, but he is fighting David's war for him and dies David's war in David's sin. So in the same way, beautiful, beautiful poetic nature of this passage, Samuel confronts the people of Israel for their sin, for their idolatry. In Nathan, you see someone doing the exact same thing. Nathan comes to David as a prophet, and he tells this parable, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 12, tells this story about two men in a city. There's this really rich man who has all this sheep, cows, goats, livestock, incredibly wealthy, has great livestock. And then he has this poor man who has one little lamb. And he treats it like a child. This, this lamb sleeps in his bed, plays with his children, eats at his table. And there's this beautiful phrase that says, this lamb was like a daughter to him. And so the rich man has a guest who comes into the city and rather than sacrificing one from the hundreds and thousands of his own livestock, he takes the poor man's little ewe, sacrifices it, and it's part of the ceremony and the, of celebration and thanksgiving. David hears this and he's immediately outraged. His conscience is pricked and he wants to kill this rich man. And in one of the most beautiful, poignant passages, statements in all scripture, Nathan turns to David and says, you are the man. You are the man. What's interesting here is Nathan confronts David and as Samuel confronts the Israelites, what we see in David is, is a beautiful picture of wholehearted repentance. He's confronted with his sin. Doesn't make up excuses. He doesn't say, well, it's Bathsheba's fault. She was being immodest. She was taking that stuff indoors or this or that. He says in chapter 12, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. There's no excuses, no crocodile tears. He's not beating himself up. There is genuine recognition of a sin, and with it, there's a recognition of what he must do. Back to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What we're going to see here, five images of what wholehearted repentance looks like. Five images. Firstly, wholehearted repentance is being honest about sin. Listen to the litany of descriptions that David gives. My iniquity, my sin, my transgressions, my sin is ever before you. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. No blame shifting, no appeal to nationality, no, you wouldn't, well, you wouldn't have done this if you knew my mother-in-law. No, none of this stuff. What David acknowledges is these are transgressions, these are sins, iniquity, evil. There's a recognition, and the variety of descriptions here is so telling. So wholehearted repentance first is being honest about sin. Also, wholehearted repentance recognizes this sin and turns to God. If you look, listen to what David's saying there, he wants the Lord's steadfast love, your abundant mercy. He recognizes I've sinned. The only way I'm going to get cleaned up, fixed up, is by the Lord's steadfast love, the Lord's mercy. 
So wholehearted repentance recognizes sin, recognizes who God is, and that it's against him that he is sinned. And when David says, against you, you only have I sinned, he's not saying, you know, I haven't sinned against Bathsheba or Uriah or their family or the nation of Israel. What he's saying is, ultimately, at the heart of all sin, it is an offense against God. It's the vertical dimension that we must address first. And what we're going to see is, in case you're thinking, well, I, I've sinned and I've really hurt these people, I'll ask God's forgiveness and, you know, we'll, we'll not deal with them. No, no, once the vertical repentance takes place, the horizontal is inevitable. Otherwise, it's not wholehearted repentance. Thirdly, wholehearted repentance begins in the heart. It's the same language that Samuel has been using. Create in me a clean heart. And this is the language that not only Samuel has been calling our attention to, but it's what scriptures are calling our attention to. Amazingly here, when David says, create in me a clean heart, this Hebrew word for create is bara, which is the same word that's used in Genesis 1. It's about creation. It's miraculous. What David is essentially asking for, Lord, do a miracle in my heart. Do a miracle in my heart. Make this clean. Purge me with hyssop. So wholehearted repentance must begin in the heart. can't be fake. It can't be pharisaical. Listen, we, we have loved ones, right? My wife's also wife, so I can get really honest. Um, I sin against my wife. It's really easy to cover that over with, I can buy her flowers. I can clean the house, take the boys to the park, get them out of her hair for a while. And that seems really nice, right? Maybe even cook a meal. But does that really get to the heart of repentance? No, it's external. I could still harbor bitterness against her. It doesn't create that smooth sense of forgiveness that we need. It doesn't fix things a biblical way. So wholehearted repentance begins in the heart. Fourthly, wholehearted repentance involves brokenness. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Again, we're in the sphere of the heart, our entire devotion and commitment there must be brokenness. And this is probably, if you're not familiar with church, this is the, the stuff that you probably get allergic to. These Christians are always crying all the time. Uh, do I have to really repent in dust and ashes? What's going on here? Well, I think what David is saying here is it's not only wholehearted repentance, not only goes to the heart of who we are, it has to go to the depths of our heart as well. It has to go to the depths of who we are. And for some, that when we are confronted with sin, whether it's children with your parents, boss, to employ, whatever that relationship looks like, there's some of us that can really turn the water taps on really quickly. The tears come automatically, almost like an actor. We see this example in Scripture. Esau, right? Esau's girding his eyes out because he sells his birthright, but he's not really repentant about giving that up. It's just the fact that he's done something wrong. He's made a massive blunder. There are many of us who acknowledge we've sinned, and we go through the motions, the rights of beating ourselves up. And we want people to see that. Because if people just see how really broken I am, they'll know that I'm, I truly am repentant. True repentance takes time. Change of heart has to come with it. But brokenness has to be involved too. And once you have a brokenness of heart over sin, what ends up happening is, you realize how little you deserve of God's grace, but you also realize how much of that grace God has given you. Brokenness 
when, it, when you're truly broken in spirit, you realize, you have a recognition, not only do I, how little I deserve God's grace, but I've been given so much. Fifthly, wholehearted repentance requires radical renunciation. Wholehearted repentance, this is a hard one to say, wholehearted repentance requires radical renunciation. Radical renunciation. And while we don't see it immediately in the text of Psalm 51, it's in our passage from this morning. Samuel says to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. A large part of turning from our sins to God involves getting rid of those things which compete for our heart's devotion, which compete for our total commitment to him. And we have to ask ourselves, what are those things? What are those things that compete for our affections? The problem is, if we don't see sin for what it is, and we don't see our idols and those things which command our affections for what they are, What's going to end up happening is we just keep our idols within whispering distance. They're not that bad, but they can still lure us. They can still call to us. And when we do that, we end up removing them from our lives. But Scripture commands a far more radical existence for us. And Christians, we fall, I mean, it's this time of year, right? Easter's coming up. We're Presbyterians, so we really don't do Lent. But... Maybe culturally and socially we do it. So I'm going to give up chocolate. I'm going to give up alcohol. I'm going to give up whatever it is. But these things end up being really self-serving and kind of superficial. They're self-serving because Easter's that time of spring. I'm already looking to Myrtle Beach or whatever beach you go to in Texas. Um, I get the beach ball. I can get healthy. I can detox the body. It's self-serving. It's not like self-sacrifice. That's not what we're talking about here. Acts 19 shows us what Radical renunciation is. Acts 19, 17 reads, Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. I'm not talking about Harry Potter. Don't get that in your head. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily they realized what their hearts were consumed with and they took them, they burnt them, they destroyed them. Why is this command to be so radical? Because our hearts are too weak and temptation is too strong. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that because we are all repeat offenders when it comes to sin. It's not just a variety of sins that get us, it's always the same sins. And we don't know why we fall into the same sins. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this amazing little book called Temptation. And he gets to the heart of why our hearts are so weak. He says this, In our bodies there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes the mastery of the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge, or love of fame and power, or greed for money. That's all of us. This is a great line. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. 
The only rea- reality is the devil at this moment. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God. And here's another piece of just beautiful wisdom. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. And if you stop and just for a moment think, what is that one sin that always trips me up? There is that moment in which you're about to commit it where God evaporates from your imagination. And you're consumed with this desire, and then your desire is acted upon. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation in the flesh, there is one command. Flee. Flee fornication. Flee idolatry. Flee youthful lusts. Flee the lusts of the world. There is no resistance to Satan in lust other than flight. Every struggle against lust in one's strength is doomed to failure. You can't fight the devil alone. You can't master your sins alone. And so without radical repentance, relapse is reality. Without radical repentance, relapse is reality. And this is where it really does get personal. Some of us need to get rid of stuff in our lives. We don't have to burn magic books. We may not have to flee in the same sense that Joseph had to flee part of his wife. In some instances, yeah, maybe there may be relationships you've got to cast down. True repentance, if it is wholehearted repentance, it begins in the heart, but it does not end until there's concrete action taken. And true repentance, wholehearted repentance, isn't completed until you turn from your sins to God. And until that takes place, those idols will still whisper in your ear, you will still be tripped up, and you will fall. There are things you're going to have to sell, things you're going to have to discard, relationships that you're going to have to cut off, It takes a radical pursuit of God. And that's why William Cooper's hymn, Oh, for a closer walk with thee, gets at the heart of it all. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. We are half-hearted creatures consumed with these idols and these tawdry things, and we keep falling into sin. We need to be more radical in our discipleship. And then finally, wholehearted repentance brings about joy. Brings about joy. Verse 12 of Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's be honest, like we're being honest a lot here this morning, but if we're really honest with ourselves, some of us are just grumpy Christians. We're kind of like Stanley, just not happy with life. And we're not experiencing the joy of Christianity. And we don't experience the joy of Christianity. Why would we want to return all the way to God? We're finding too much half-hearted joy in our sins. Our Christian lives are anemic when it comes to joy. So many of us aren't experiencing joy because we still are playing around with idols and sins. But then there's some of us, we aren't experiencing joy because we are damning ourselves over our sins. We can't get away from this thing that we did in college or in our youth what we did last week or last night, and we are damning ourselves because of it. And if I could point to the Westminster Confession of Faith, don't tune me out, verse chapter 15, one of the most beautiful things you'll find in the Westminster Confession of Faith. As there is no sin so small that it deserves damnation, every sin deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. You truly repent, your sins are forgiven. They're gone. Whatever it is you've done, the smallest thing to the greatest thing, it's done. 
You look to Jesus Christ on the cross, and the Father says, when you think that sin is condemning you and damning you, look at my son's hands. Look at those nail-pierced hands. Look at my son's brow in which the thorns pierced him. Look at his side. Let them bear witness to the fact that your sins are gone. Look to Jesus. Another instance in which we think about repentance, and this is our transition to our final point, which will be brief. Repentance is lifelong. Luther in, I should know this, I'm a seminary professor, October 31st, 1517, post-95 theses, to the wall in Wittenberg. These were declarations. The first thesis, the first statement that he makes is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The entire life should be stamped with repentance. You're thinking, well, okay, that's too much work. I didn't sign up for this. Repenting all my life long? That just sounds exhausting. How in the world can I do this? First Samuel shows us this, that we need help from another. We need help from another. If you look at this, my last point, help from another. One of the most beautiful and encouraging statements in this entire book is in chapter 7, verse 20, which we'll focus on again next week. Samuel takes this stone, calls it Ebenezer, stone of help, Ebenezer, stone of help. He says, till now the Lord has helped us. Till now the Lord has helped us. In 421, the glory of God leaves the people. It's Ichabod. And by 720, the help of God has arrived in Ebenezer. This move from the glory has been exiled to the Lord has helped us demonstrates not only that God does help us, but God wants to help us. And how does God help the Israelites here? He gives them Samuel. Look at Samuel's activity here. He's ministering in three ways. He's ministering as a prophet. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. You see this in verse 3 of our present chapter. Samuel calls Israel to repentance. He's also serving as a priest. Verse 5, I will pray to the Lord for you, Israel. Verse 9, Samuel sacrifices a lamb and cries out for the people. 17, he builds an altar to the Lord. These are priestly offices. And then finally, he's serving as a king. Samuel judges the people, verse 6. And in verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He rules over them. Samuel is a prophet, a priest, and a king. You know where I'm going with this. We have a greater prophet, priest, and a king. How do we sustain a lifelong practice of repentance? We have a prophet, we have a priest, we have a king who is here to help each and every one of us. God has helped us in tremendous ways. And how has he done that? He's not only given us a stone of help, he's given us a cross of help. Jesus went to the cross to be our ultimate Ebenezer. He's greater than Samuel as priest. He is greater than Samuel as prophet. He is greater than Samuel as king because he doesn't just sacrifice a lamb for the people. Jesus sacrifices himself for us. He is the ultimate lamb. He's broken the power of sin over us. And I can't help, every sermon it seems I keep coming back to the book of Hebrews because it gets to the heart of what not only Samuel is, but what we need is a priest, a prophet, and a king. In Hebrews 7, 25, we read, He is able, Jesus is able, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. There's that move from sin to God. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. And the NIV captures verse 26 really well. Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted 
above the heavens. Christ is your help. Even when you feel helpless, even when you feel overwhelmed, exhausted, the sins have beaten you down, he gives help to you. But it's not just for you, it's so that the help will go through you. I mean, this is my final illustration. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian during the time of the Nazi occupation in Holland. And she and her family were sent to Auschwitz for hiding Jews in their home. And she gave a talk in Portland, Oregon at one point. And she opens and she says, I don't want you to take any, this is to the crowd, large crowd in Portland, Oregon. I don't want you to take notes or listen to anything I say unless you know who I am. The audience began to chuckle softly because everyone knew who Corrie ten Boom was. Then she proceeded, my name is Corrie ten Boom and I am a murderer. There was total silence. You see, when I was in prison camp, I, gave, I saw the same guard day in and day out. He was the one who mocked and sneered at us when we were stripped naked and taken into the showers. He spat on us in contempt, and I hated him. I hated him with every fiber of my being. And Jesus says, when you hate someone, you are guilty of murder. So I wanted you to know right from the start that you are listening to a murderer. When we were freed, I left Germany vowing I would never return but I was invited back there to speak, and I didn't want to go, but I felt the Lord nudging me to. Very reluctantly, I went. My first talk was on forgiveness. Suddenly, as I was speaking, I saw to my horror that the guard was sitting in the front row. There was no way that he would ever have recognized me. When he had last seen me, I was emaciated, sick, and my hair was shorn. But I could never forget his face, never it was clear to me from the radiant look on his face while I spoke that he had been converted since I last saw him. After I had finished speaking, he came up and said with a beaming smile, Ah, dear Sister Corey, isn't it wonderful how God forgives? And he extended his hand for me to shake. All I felt as I looked at him was hate. I said to the Lord silently, There is nothing in me that could ever love that man. I hate him for what he did to me and my family. But you tell us that we are to love our enemies. That's impossible for me, but nothing is impossible for you. So if you expect me to love this man, it's going to have to come from you because all I feel is hate. She told us that at that moment, she felt nudged to do only one thing, to put out her hand. She felt this call from God, put your hand out, Corey, shake his hand. Then Corey said, it took all the years that I quietly obeyed God in obscurity to do the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. I put out my hand. And then she said something remarkable happened. It was only after my simple act of obedience that I felt something almost like warm oil was being poured over me. And with it came the unmistakable message, well done, Corey. That's how my children behave. And the hate in my heart was absorbed and gone. And so one murderer embraced another murderer, but in the love of Christ. Then Corey, in her wonderful Dutch accent, said, yes, I am a murderer, but you are listening to one gloriously, marvelously, marvelously freed and forgiven murderer. You see, I love so much because I've been forgiven so much. I love so much because I have been forgiven so much. When God promises that he's going to help us, it's not just to restore us to him, to turn us from our sin, our idols to God, to live in joyful presence with him. But if we're holding on to grudges, to bitterness, to sin, we truly haven't experienced his love and forgiveness. So the hard part is what do we do next with this? Some of us are going to have to confess sin to parents, to spouses, to parents, to family members, to bosses.
But if you are truly repentant, if you have truly been brought into the presence of God, you understand what true help is. You understand that God's grace is something you don't deserve. But like that warm oil that Corey felt pour over her, you've received it. 